Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. Scripture for this morning is Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. If you have your Bible, I invite you to open up to that passage and follow along as we read it. If you don't have a Bible, we would like to give you one and the table's in the back on your way out. Again, the scripture is Luke 3, verses 1 through 15. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the ax is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, again, it's good to be with you all. And if you do have your Bibles, I encourage you to, to be open to Luke uh, chapter 3. Uh, but before we jump in, I want to pray for our time. But, but what I want to do, I want to invite, invite us to pray for one another and for ourselves uh, and, and for you to pray for me as we prepare to hear from God through his word. And so what I want to do is just give us a moment of silence and just for you where you're, you're seated, uh, just to pray to God, ask him to speak to you in this time, to reveal himself to you through his word. You might hear him and see him afresh. So let's take a moment to pray. Father, we do ask that you would speak to us afresh in this time. Open our eyes to see and behold wondrous things from your word. And would you in this moment just pray for those who are seated near you. Pray for God to awaken them and to open them to the truths of his word in this time.
Father, we do ask for your spirit to open the eyes of those around us so that as they grow in their understanding and joy in Christ Jesus, that we might benefit from that collectively. And would you in this time pray for me as I prepare to open God's word and share his truth with all of us. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. It is the name of Christ Jesus and for his glory we pray. Amen. Your current balance is zero. Is that good news or bad news? <laughs> we, we don't know. Like some, I mean, like depending on your perspective, like that, that, you hear that and you either think that's good news or that's bad news, but you don't know unless you know the news that precedes it. I remember, uh, you know, several years ago, I remember getting on the phone and hearing those words, your balance is zero, when I called to find out the status of the amount of my student loan debt. And yes, yes, that's, that's worth celebrating. But, but here's the thing, like when I finally made that last payment, I remember hearing those words and rejoicing. And I will never forget that day because we, we never forget the day we hear uniquely good news. But what prepared me to hear those words, your balance is zero, what prepared me to hear that news as good news was the fact that it was preceded by very bad news, namely that my student loan debt was a sizable sum. And so the very thing, like in order to understand the depth of good news, we must be prepared to hear bad news because the good news, as good as it is, can only be as good as the bad news is bad. We all know this in various ways, and that's precisely what I want us to look at as we continue on in our sermon series that we're calling Rediscovering Jesus. Uh, If you missed us last week, we began our series in the Gospel of Luke, uh, looking at this question of who is the real Jesus? All of us, regardless of our religious background, we all have some idea of Jesus. And as we explore together on this journey through the Gospel of Luke, my hope and prayer is that all of us would allow our views of Jesus to be challenged and to be recalibrated by how Luke presents Jesus to us in the Gospels. And as we continue on, as we meet together in our text in Luke 3, I want to suggest this idea for us to explore and consider. And that's this, that the straightest way to get to Jesus is owning up to our own crookedness. The straightest way to Jesus is owning up to our crookedness. I think that is exactly what what John is trying to express in his, what Luke records as his message of baptism of repentance that we'll be looking at this morning. I think one of the reasons why why all of us, regardless of our religious spectrum or background, where we are in that spectrum, the reason I think we struggle to hear the news of Jesus as good news is because we have not properly prepared ourselves to hear the bad news that precedes it. We have not prepared ourselves to hear from Jesus in the good news of his kingdom that is broken in because we have not done the work of preparing ourselves to hear the bad news of our broken, crooked ways. And this is the message that John, I believe, is giving us. Now, just, just so you know, like you know, we're jumping from Luke 1 to Luke 3. Some of you might be thinking like we're just totally skipping the birth of Jesus. Uh, we explored that, that section of Luke in our Advent series, so feel free to go back to that sermon series if you'd like. Uh, but we jump now to Luke 3 in this message of John the Baptist and his message of, of baptism through repentance. 
And, and if you notice, and if you notice again, Luke, he gives this great attention to detail yet again. If you're with us last week, we saw how Luke is not just presenting some kind of religious folklore about this man, Jesus. He's giving this orderly account. He has investigated the details. He has done his homework to present to us the real historical Jesus. And we see that same effort of detail in Luke's historical acumen as he gives account of who was reigning at that time, uh, where they were in charge, who were the religious leaders were of the day. Luke wants us to see and understand what's going on in this real time and space as he's recording the message of John the Baptist. But more than just giving us helpful data about what was taking place in that time, Luke is actually trying to kind of help us feel what is the temperature like in the moral climate of the day. And it was very chilling because there was great political corruption as well as religious corruption, which is why Luke gives account, he records both who is in, in political power as well as who possessed the religious power in this time. And it is this backdrop of both religious and political corruption and brokenness and crookedness that John's message of repentance is being delivered. And Luke tells us that John was proclaiming a baptism of repentance, which, which is kind of unclear. Like, we don't know exactly what that means because it was kind of a, a new message that was breaking onto the scene. But Luke gives us some context. Before he gets to John's words, he gives us some context from the, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah to help us understand what John's message of repentance is all about. And so if you look with me in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, we read these words, quoting from Isaiah. Prepare the way of the Lord and make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now the reason why Luke is quoting from Isaiah is to show us that John's message of, of repentance is a preparatory message. It's the, the preview trailer of the theatrical film. It's, it's the priming of the pump, the setting of the stage of what is about to take place. In other words, what John's message is showing us is that the best way to receive the good news of Jesus' kingdom is to hear the bad news of our crookedness. The best way to hear good news is to first hear bad news. And so this reference to the valleys being filled and mountains and hills being made low, it's a way of communicating the posture of those who are prepared for the ways of Jesus. That those who are drunk with pride and power, uh, pride and power have elevated themselves to the point of like a mountain and they will be humbled. Those who are in a place of deep despair and contrite spirit, they will be lifted up. It's so a way to kind of even illustrate it, to use this word metaphor that Isaiah is showing us. Those who lift themselves up as high as Mount Everest, can I get a picture of this, who are drunk with pride and power, they will be the ones humbled and brought down, for they have elevated themselves and they don't see themselves clearly. But simultaneously, those who understand that they are in the Grand Canyon, if you will, of despair and brokenness and crookedness, they will be lifted up for they understand their plight and their situation and they will be exalted. The proud shall be humbled. So in order to be ready for Jesus and the power of his message, there is this forerunner that has been sent, John the Baptist, to prepare the way of Jesus and his message. Because if we can't, here's the thing, if we can't handle John's message, 
we won't be able to understand and receive Jesus' message. That if we struggle with this message of repentance that John is preparing the way for, then we will not have a chance of hearing what Jesus has to say to us. Or, or to put it in my, my love language of, of Mexican food, if you can't handle the complimentary chips and salsa, you will not be able to handle the habanero entree that's coming your way. Like, you've got to be prepared for this. And so that's kind of what John is doing, preparing his people, the people, the crowds, for the message that is to come. And so if, this is, if, if the straightest way to Jesus is through owning up to our crookedness, then I, I want to ask us this question. Can we hear words of rebuke? If the straightest way to Jesus is owning up to our crookedness, then we should ask ourselves the question, can we hear words of rebuke? Because John, John, he could benefit from like, like a public relations class or some like emotional intelligence stuff. Like he just has harsh words for the crowds and does not really have much of a strategy of like winning people over with his words. Notice what he says in verse 7. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. I highly doubt anybody's like greeting mat on their front porch says, welcome vipers. Like, like it's not a welcoming term. John is saying this, and, and it's, it's actually less about their distorted morality. Sometimes serpents, vipers, snakes is used to kind of describe de- deception, deceit, and that's true. But it's actually, John is using this as a metaphor to describe their displaced motivation. Meaning that they have come to John to be baptized, but they're not really interested in his message of repentance and bearing fruit. They're they're coming, they're fleeing kind of like vipers from a forest fire, escaping, and it doesn't matter where they go as long as they're just away from the fire. They're not interested in what John has to say, they're just trying to get away from the environment they're in. Which is why John immediately follows up in verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And so what he's telling the crowds here is essentially this. They are just wanting to have the appearance of righteousness. There's this new prophet on the stage and he's talking about the breaking in of God's kingdom and he's talking about this this act of baptism. And so the the crowds are coming to him wanting to be baptized. They kind of have this certificate, this kind of recognition that they are righteous and pious but they're not really interested in what comes after that, a life of repentance and bearing fruit. They're, they're, if you will, they're showing up to the day of the marathon to get their free t-shirt and their medal and then just going back home without running the race. They want the recognition of what they've accomplished, the appearance of it, without the sincere effort put towards it. And John very clearly says, nope. To be baptized is to be one who is repentant, and one who is repentant is one who bears fruit in obedience. And these words that John, I think, is giving to the crowds are words that we need to hear, especially within our own culture where one of the dominant narratives that we all buy into in some way, shape, or form is just you do you. Follow your heart. You decide what's right. And so when we are the determiners of our fate, the captains of our soul, The idea of someone telling us how we should live or what we should change about our lives, well, it doesn't mesh well with us. And so when we adopt this idea of you do you, then when we hear words of rebuke, it's like, well, you can't tell me how to live my life. I'm free to be and do whatever I want. Don't put any limitations on my life. I want to be able to be free to find joy as I see fit. And when this is our posture, whether we say it out loud or not, and and if we're honest, in our Midwestern politeness, we don't say it out loud. We think it. We judge you privately and secretly, you know. But when that's our attitude, 
that you don't have the right to judge me and tell me how I should live, we are demonstrating how insincere our repentant heart is. In that moment, in our defensiveness, we're revealing that we're not interested in rediscovering Jesus. We're interested in redefining Jesus. We want him to fit into our life. We talked about it last week, that Jesus is not the true Jesus that we follow. He's this bacon-wrapped Jesus, something that we enjoy and make more palatable for our diet. And so if, if the straightest way to Jesus is owning up to our crookedness, and if we need to be able to hear words of rebuke, let me suggest this for us. Can we collectively, can we admit that we don't see ourselves clearly? Can we admit that we don't have the clearest, most articulate understanding and perspective of ourselves and that it requires outside voices and perspectives and eyesight to speak into our lives? Can we adopt a posture that says, it's quite possible and very likely that the person who is speaking to me and calling me out on something, giving me a word of correction and rebuke, sees something that I don't see? Is it possible that the person you're talking to knows more about yourself in some way than you do actually? And and the way to test how sincere or genuine that posture is in our lives, just count the seconds it takes for you to respond to that word with kind of a defensiveness, with a yeah, but. How quick are you to defend, explain, justify away your behavior in that moment? I'm not saying that every word of correction that comes to you is gospel truth and you must embrace it. That's not true. But can we at least have this default posture that says, I want to be willing to admit that there are blind spots I don't see. And so, man, give me the gift of correction and point out the flaws or the crooked ways within me that I might walk the straight path. So if we want to be prepared to hear Jesus, then we need to be prepared to hear words of rebuke that might call us to something that is actually for our good. Because if the straightest way to Jesus is owning up to our crookedness, we have to be able to hear words of rebuke, which requires us admitting we don't see ourselves clearly. Now, as John continues in his message, we get to verse 10, and we actually find something is kind of uh, turned in the hearts of the crowd. They, They actually express some level of sincere interest in what John has to say. Look with me at verse 10. It says, and then the crowds asked him, referring to John, what then shall we do? So after like, he's kind of like, given him this hard message of repentance and that they're these brood of vipers, they actually kind of in, in some level of sincerity say, okay, well, so what's next? What, what, where do we go from this place? And so we don't know to what degree they recognize their sin, but they at least recognize in saying, what shall we now do? They recognize that there is at least something in them that needed to be repented of. They may not have known what it was specifically, but they're at least willing to say, okay, I, I may not see it, but like help, like help me, show me what I may not see. And so if, again, if the straightest way to Jesus is owning up to our crookedness, then yes, we need to be able to hear words of rebuke. But the second thing I would add and get a little bit more specific is that can we see works of ruin? Can we hear words of rebuke, but does that lead us to then be able to see the works of ruin in our lives, the ways in which we are complicit in the brokenness that we see in the world, that we critique, is it possible that we are complicit in it? So it's one thing, it's one thing for me to, to say, I'm a sinful person. 
Like that's, that's easy in a sense. Like, I mean, like, like we all, if, you, if you've grown up in the church, you've probably learned the art of kind of like vague confession of sin. Like, yeah, I'm a broken person. And it's enough to kind of let people know like, oh, he's such a humble person. But, but we've done it in such a way where we don't actually have to get down into what it is that I have done that is beginning to unmake me and has kind of created chaos in my relationships in the world around me. It's one thing for me to say I'm a sinful person. It's another thing to say I see my sin and how it was conceived and what it did to myself and to those around me. It's one thing for me to tell Megan I'm an insensitive husband. It's another thing for me to tell her, babe, I, I completely ignored you and neglected your feelings in the way that I callously dismissed your question and concern. Like that's specific. You're getting down into detail here. But when we don't have a real functional understanding of how there is ruin in our lives, it's like coming to the doctor and when she asks you what ails you and you just say, I hurt. Like that doesn't give her enough to work with. Like, like you've got to be a bit more specific. Like I have a pain in my side or there's been this like splitting headache for three weeks or whatever. There's specificity. Are we able to see the works of ruin within our lives? And it needs to be specific, it needs to be clear. Not because we're trying to fabricate guilt, like you need to know what you did and feel bad about it, but like we've gotta be specific. If you don't know specifically what ails you, you won't know how to remedy it. Are we specific, are we clear? And notice what John does when, when the crowd says, what shall we now do? Notice what John does. He goes into great detail in how each person in their specific sphere should repent. Look with me at verses 11 through 14. And so John answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with them who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you were authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. In other words, John is giving customized instruction to these people in what repentance and bearing fruit looks like in their lives. And did you notice that he doesn't give religious responses like you must pray this prayer, you must fast from this thing, those are all good things, but notice what is the instruction he gives? He doesn't give religious response. He gives economic responses. I mean, which is so interesting. In fact, this is the first recorded instruction in Luke's gospel of John telling the crowds how they should now live, and it all pertains to how they think about and understand vocation and work. What John is calling them to is a specific repentance as it pertains to and relates to where they spend the majority of their time. Now, he starts with the crowds in a very generic sense, and he says, those of you that have two tunics, you should share with those who have none. In other words, what, what John is saying to the crowds, like, look, look here, here, here's the base model of what repentance is. If you're going to walk in the ways of the kingdom of Jesus, you have to understand that all that you have, all that you are, is stewarded to you by God to be used for the good of others, that your resources, your finances, your home, your possessions, your intelligence, your privilege, your relationships, your postures, your, your uh, power and authority, all of these things that you have are to be stewarded for the goods of others. Not necessarily first and foremost for ourselves. That we should live our lives from a posture of generosity. That is the base level of repentance regardless of, of what you do in your Monday life. 
But then he speaks to tax collectors. So he goes from the crowds to then tax collectors. And tax collectors, just so you know, like tax collectors were um, employed by the Roman government to go around and collect taxes from the people. The uh, unfortunate thing for the people, but fortunate for the tax collectors, is that the crowds did not know, the people did not know how much they were to be taxed. That was left up to the Roman government and for what the tax collector told them. And so the tax collectors would typically tax and collect more than what Rome demanded. And that difference was actually how they made their profits. And so when you mix that in with kind of the the nature of greed within our hearts, it was very common for tax collectors to add and tax more and more. And so as they taxed more and more, the hatred of tax collectors among the people, as you can imagine, increased simultaneously. But notice what John says to these tax collectors, the, 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 the phrase, the category in the Bible that's always like corrupt and evil. He tells them, first of all, he doesn't tell them to leave their job. He doesn't tell them to leave their inherently sinful vocation. Rather, he says, do your work with integrity. Do your work with justice and fairness. No longer collect more than what you were authorized to collect. Do your job correctly, wisely, ethically, with integrity. He doesn't call them to leave their sinful um, vocation, but to rather be repentant and work as to the Lord and for others within it. Rather than working fiendishly within your place of work, now work faithfully and fruitfully. Likewise, the soldiers, he comes to the soldiers, so the soldiers come like, okay, what should we do? I mean, we, we, clearly we must be in some kind of corrupt form as we're extorting people and taking advantage of people. And what does John say? Again, he doesn't tell them to leave their vocation, but rather to use their power, their privilege and authority to be stewarded for the good of others, not by taking advantage of them. He says, your fundamental identity now is no longer as a tax collector, no longer as a soldier. You are now a citizen of the kingdom of God. And so now enter into that vocation with that mindset, seeking to be a blessing to others rather than seeking to compensate yourselves and accumulate for your own well-being and joy. We are now to see ourselves as citizens of Jesus' kingdom who now serve through our respective vocations. And so if we, bringing it to kind of 2020, if we are to be a people marked by this kind of understanding of what repentance is and what it means to walk in the ways of Jesus, then if we are to see works of ruin in our lives, I want to suggest that it requires us looking at our Mondays through a brokenness lens. We need to look at our Mondays through a brokenness lens. And let let me explain what I mean by that. Every one of us has a Monday. We use this as a metaphor at Christ's community. And it's a way to describe the, the place where we spend the majority of our time. You may find yourself, it's the place where we, where we serve, where we have influence, where we contribute. It may be the home that you make. It may be the school you attend. It may be the job that you work. The question we should ask ourselves is, are we aware that that place, that arena, that environment is a place God has called you to and sent you to, to be his representatives in this world. It's why we do these spotlights. It's why I interviewed Annika to share how is God at work through the work she does. Are we aware of that fact that God sends us into these places to be ambassadors of his kingdom that is breaking into this world? And my concern and fear is that we don't see that enough. And when we don't see that, we, conversely, we fail to see or struggle to see the ways in which our behaviors, our practices, our perspectives, and our postures in our Monday life 
how they perpetuate the crookedness that we see in our world. If we are not mindful of the fact that God has called us to serve him and love him in our Monday lives, then we will fail to see or struggle to see the ways in which we are complicit in perpetuating that brokenness. So let's do, I want us to do a thought experiment here. What would John say to you? What would he say to me? If you ask him this question, like, what shall we now do, John? What would he say to you? What if the text read, and, and there were some principal bioanalytics investigators, three for three, coming up to John, asking him, what shall we now do? What would he say to that vocation? What would he say to you and me? What would he call us to, to be repentant of and bear fruit? Maybe he might say, stop overcharging your clients when you know you're taking advantage of them. Be mindful and wise of the way in which you allow your children to use technology and media in the home. Be, be mindful of the fact that you should be, if you're an employer, have the, the compassion and the capacity to provide meaningful compensation, generous compensation packages for your people. Don't discriminate against your customers because of their ethnicity or their age or their gender. Be a person who is ethically conscious in their consuming and their, and their purchasing. Refrain from inhumane practices that, that you use to, to produce your products and services. Stop gossiping about your classmates, your colleagues, your neighbors. Don't cheat on your exams. How can we be mindful of these things? What does it look like? What would we be called to in our Monday life when John calls us to repentance? But I want, I want us to take it a step further because, again, we, we tend to read the scriptures, live our lives in very individualistic ways. And is it possible that, that, yes, we should, we should repent first before we call out on others, but is it possible that part of what it means to repent and part of what it means to refrain from crookedness is to call out the evil that we see in others? Yes, lovingly so and with grace, but, but boldly and clearly nonetheless, especially those who are in our spheres of influence in our Monday lives who are followers of Jesus, how are we calling them out? If, if, if they're seeking to follow Jesus and represent him in their vocations and they're doing things that are perpetuating brokenness, they're, they're cutting corners, you, you know that they're employing practices that are uh, like taking money from the company, they, they have perspectives and attitudes that, that are racist or, or xenophobic or whatever it may be, what are the things that you see that you can call them out, not because you want to put them in their place, hear me, but because you want to see them and others flourish in their place. You all know the difference that. You all know that, that feeling of like, oh man, I can't wait to put this person in their place and call them out. That's not, that's not the posture and the spirit that I'm speaking of. Do we have that ability to see the brokenness in us through our Monday lives, but do we also see it in those around us? And do we have the compassionate courage to speak out against it? So as we transition from being the church gathered to being the church scattered, we need to be a people who are able to hear the words of rebuke, who are able to see the works of ruin within us and around us, so that we might be able to walk the ways of repentance. John the Baptist, what he's doing, he's preparing the way for Jesus. He's preparing, he's preparing the way for people to walk in the ways of Jesus. And one of the fundamental ways we walk in the ways of Jesus is through repentance. And it's not just this one-time activity that we engage in. Repentance is this a lifestyle, it is a pattern. In fact, the, the gospel writer Luke, he uses the noun repentance and the verb repent more than all three other gospel writers combined. 
which is a way of Luke saying this, this whole idea of repentance, it's, it's interwoven into the life of following Jesus inextricably so you cannot remove it. This, this habit, this pattern, this practice of repentance is the act of it. It's turning away from sin and crookedness and turning towards obedience and fruitfulness. To, to illustrate it, there's... Um, one of my kind of morning routines that I do is I, uh, I hang from my pull-up bar for about 45 seconds as a way to kind of stretch my back out. It's been a helpful routine. I mean, I wake up, I mean, like, if you're, if you're like me, you wake up, my back is just like tight, and it's just a great way to kind of relax myself. It helps my posture. In some ways, that, that practice is like repentance. We wake up with a recognition that there is something within me that is crooked, And if I am not intentional in addressing it and responding to it, taking action, that crookedness will perpetuate. It will compound, produce greater problems. In the same way, what is repentance? It's recognizing there's a crookedness within me and that I must take action to address it so that I might be straightened out, so to speak, in the ways of Jesus. But the remedy, the remedy of repentance is not just in the refraining from the bad thing. That's, that's half of the battle, so to speak. But what true repentance is, it is the turning from and turning towards, which is why, again, John says in verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Which means that to repent of our greed is not just through the act of kind of uh, limiting our, our consumption and our purchasing and our uh, uh, accumulating of things. That's part of it. But a really big part of repenting of our greed is to pursue generosity. That one of the ways we repent of our lust, yes, it's not just in avoiding pornography or something like that, but it is the pursuit of beauty and meaningful relationships. To repent of our pride is not to try to think about ourselves less, but to focus our attention, our energy in caring for and meeting the needs of others as though their interests are more important than your own. Repentance is more than just turning from something. It is turning towards its righteous and virtuous opposite. But furthermore, repentance is also something that we we never graduate from. It's not a one-time activity. It's not a pill we swallow. It should be a regular routine practice that we engage in, not out of a sense of obligation, but because we long to be more and more like Jesus, the one whom we love and the one who has redeemed us. That's why we engage in this practice. And so, so with that said, let me, let me suggest just a, a way for us to think about framing our days around the practice and the ways of repentance. What, if, what would it look like for us to bookend our days with, with these prayers? If we began our day with, with this prayer, Lord, as I prepare for this day, awaken me to see my sin and grant me the wisdom to repent. Lord, as I prepare for this day, awaken me to see my sin and grant me the wisdom to repent. Now, you might say, like, that's just a downer. You're just starting your day negative. But it's a recognition. I believe you're, you're beginning with an understanding that there's a crookedness within you. And if we're not careful, we will go the way of crookedness. And it will wreak havoc on our lives and those around us. Can we have the eyes to see and the wisdom to repent when we stray? But then it's important for us to then end our day with this prayer. Lord, as I look back on this day, show me where I have sinned and remind me of your grace. Because here's the thing, repentance, it is not this religious kind of tool that pastors use to make their people feel guilty so they keep coming back to church. 
That is not repentance. What repentance is, is the bad news that we must hear so that we might delight in, trust in, live out, and enjoy the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we have been redeemed and forgiven, reconciled to God our Father. That is why we embrace the bad news. The best way to hear good news is to first hear bad news. Which is why John, it's, it's so funny, when you read John, like you think of John the Baptist, man, he's like, he's rough, he is tough, he is, he is straightforward. And notice what Luke says about John's preaching. It's uh, in verse 18. And so, so after all of this like hard instruction and exhortation, repentance, and so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. I don't, like, I don't know if we would naturally think of John as a good news preacher, and yet that's exactly what Luke says in describing him. Because the message of repentance is good news precisely because it awakens us to the fact that as broken and as sinful and as dead as we may be in our sin, the ability for Jesus to redeem, restore, forgive, and reconcile is far greater. And to understand that depth, we must prepare ourselves by hearing this bad news. The practice and the habits of repentance are what allow the sweetness of our salvation to be that much sweeter to make the joy of our justification with God that much more joyful and the freedom found in forgiveness that much more freeing. We must prepare ourselves to hear bad news so that we might delight in the good news of Jesus. Amen? That's why we engage this practice. The best way to hear good news, the best way to live in and delight in Jesus' loving forgiveness is to first hear the bad news of my crookedness and your crookedness. Because again, the straightest way to Jesus is in, open, is in owning up to our crookedness. And when we do, we find that Jesus stands ready and able to forgive us, to redeem us, and to welcome us in. And when that is our Lord and Savior, that puts us on a path that leads us down a life where repentance is not a religious obligation, but a joyful practice that makes us more and more like our Savior. The question is, are we prepared to hear Jesus? And I think as a way for us to be prepared, I, I, I want to invite us to pray. I, I want to lead us in a time of confession and repentance. And, and what I want to do, I just want to give us a moment of just silence and reflection for a bit, but I want to lead us through a prayer that I'll, I'll lead, and then there will be a portion where we all say together, Lord, have mercy. And so as we just sit in this truth, Help us, I just pray that we would help, the Lord would help us in seeing and understanding our works of ruin so that we might walk in the ways of repentance and receive forgiveness. So let's just take a moment to pray silently and I'll lead us in our time of confession. Father, out of the depths we cry to you and in our suffering and in our pain we cry to you. Out of the depths, God, we we cry to you asking that you would equip us to repent. And so, holy God, hear our prayer. For the mending of our hearts torn apart by our unkindness, Lord, have mercy. For the healing of our souls wasting away from the despair around us, Lord, have mercy. For For the forgiveness we seek for the sin we have allowed to persist, Lord, have mercy. For the reconciliation of the world whose division condemns us, Lord, have mercy. For our passivity and indifference toward injustices, Lord, have mercy. 
We pray for the courage to admit our faults and the strength to amend our actions. Lord, have mercy, and the hope that your grace awaits us. Through Christ we pray, amen.